This is available as a podcast and a webinar. This conference will now be recorded. All right, good afternoon and welcome to our annual case law update with Judge Jim Blake. And thank you so much to Judge Blake for doing this every year. Uh, For those of you who have been to the judicial conferences, you're aware that he does this every year at the judicial conferences. Uh, And um, so he's, he's graciously agreed to make himself available for us. Uh, and this, um, if, with, if everything works, should be stored on YouTube and as a podcast so that it is available for future reference. Uh, judge Blake is a longtime judge. I do need you, if you're on the phone, I do need you to mute yourself. Uh, he is a longtime uh, municipal court judge for the city of Scottsdale and was a prosecutor before then, a highly respected source. So thank you, Judge Blake. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Uh, first of all, welcome to all those who are on the conference. Uh, one of the things I have done is I've prepared like a brief summary of the case and I've also done up a PowerPoint that lists some of the cases that we'll go over. Um, one of the things I would encourage you to do, though, before you cite anything or use this is read the case for yourself. Uh, you may have a different opinion of the case than I do, so it's important if you're going to cite the case that you've read it for yourself so you can have your own opinion on it. Uh, we had one case once where there was an appeal to the uh, Superior Court, and the reason the judge gave was because uh, Judge Blake said so <laughs> in one of his lectures. And uh, that while the judge in Superior Court was very nice and said, well, that's interesting, but that's not really what we look for in the law, um, it'd be good to cite the case yourself after you've read it yourself, especially in case you might disagree with me. Another thing that's important about looking at the case before you cite it is, as you'll see in some of these materials, several of these cases have been overruled by the Supreme Court. So uh, it's important to note that to make sure you're not citing a case that the Supreme Court has overruled as to the being the current law. If any of these cases are your cases, uh, don't take offense that they were overturned. Remember, as a trial judge, um, you have to make a split decision as to what you think should happen, whereas appellate court judges have plenty of time to sit there, ponder the legal aspects of it, and then over weeks render a decision. So don't be upset if one of your cases was overturned. It happens to everyone. And if your case hasn't been overturned, maybe it's just you haven't been a judge long enough because eventually they're going to get to you. It'll just be your turn in the barrel. First case I want to talk about was the number one case listed, State versus Imaldi, E-M-D-E-D-I. And basically this whole has to do with there's a settlement conference. And as you all know, in a settlement conference, that judge should not be the trial judge who holds the settlement conference. However, the parties have a right to waive that if they choose to. In this case, the parties waive the the judge uh, hearing the settlement conference could also be the, the trial judge Settlement conference didn't work. The defendant went to trial and was convicted, and then the defendant objected, saying that uh, while his lawyer may have waived the trial judge being also a settlement judge, he or she did not. Um, the Court of Appeals said that doesn't matter. It was a tactical decision on behalf of the attorney. The attorney gets to make tactical decisions, and they wrote, we hold we hold that a defendant's right to a judicial officer other than the assigned trial judge is not personal to the defendant and therefore may be waived by his or her counsel. Important thing to remember here is counsel waived it. 
Sometimes the judges forget about that. And while you can waive it, if you don't waive it, you're out of luck. Uh, so if, you're, if you have to be a settlement judge and you're also going to be the trial judge, make sure you get a waiver on the record from the parties, the lawyers, that they're going to allow you to be a trial judge. Otherwise, you're going to go through the whole thing of a settlement. You're going to go through the whole thing of a trial. And then um, you're going to be overturned. So make sure you get that waiver if you're going to be both the trial judge and the settlement judge. Another thing, though, to consider on this is, to, is uh, whether or not you really want to do that. Um, if you hear a case and are the settlement judge and you're also going to be the trial judge with a waiver, you got to remember that in the trial, every time you make a ruling, the adverse party is going to think, oh, yeah, you're doing that because I didn't agree to the settlement. So do you really want to have that issue occur? Uh, you can. It's legal to occur with the waiver, uh, but it might be something tactically you don't want to do. It's, it's, it's more of an issue where you only have one, a one-judge court, but like here, for instance, in Scottsdale, we have four judicial officers, so someone else can do the settlement. Again, like I said, with a waiver, you can do it. You don't need the defendant personally waiving it. If the defendant objects, that can be an issue. Here, the defendant didn't do anything, but um, you need that waiver if you're also going to be the trial judge. Next case I'd like to go to is number two, and that's listed in your uh, coming up here right now. And basically what this is, is a case is resolved, and later on, there comes a claim for restitution. Um, the defendant, uh, the victim is entitled to restitution. And in this case, the trial judge originally finds the restitution request to be too late, and also in this case, there was a restitution cap. This is prior to them, the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals getting rid of the restitution cap. So remember, there is no longer, you can't have a restitution cap. I don't really understand their reasoning. Their reasoning is because under the Victim's Bill of Rights, the, defendant is in, the victim is entitled to full restitution. Somehow they believe if the victim doesn't agree to the restitution cap, there is a denial of full restitution. However, we all know under restitution cap law that if the, the victim is still entitled to full restitution and if the cap is too low, then if it's a de minimis amount, it doesn't matter. If it is an amount that's not de minimis, then the defendant has to be given a right to withdraw from the plea and allow the full restitution. So with the old restitution cap law, I don't really understand why that's an issue, but it is. The Supreme Court has ruled, and we as lower court judges have to follow the Supreme Court, so don't have a restitution cap in your case. Always state too to the defendant that there's going to be a restitution hearing, the defendant will have a right to, to cross-examine evidence or question evidence. The defendant will have a right to present their own evidence, and then the court will make a determination as to what the restitution is, if any. In this case, the main issue, though, was that the sentence occurred and no restitution was awarded because no restitution was requested. It was requested late. And, they, and the court wrote, there's no rule or statute imposing a deadline for claiming restitution. Although subsection 13-603C is silent, as to when restitution may be assessed, generally it is at the time of sentencing. The Superior Court, and also our courts, however, may set a reasonable deadline for the filing of a restitution claim. So in this case, you know, it was sent back to see if, if this restitution is available and if it was reasonably requested in a reasonable amount of time. 
So keep in mind, though, that just because it comes in late doesn't mean you can just say, as this court did originally, uh, you're not entitled to restitution, you filed too late. Still have to have a hearing, still have to decide if it was fi timely filed and if uh, there's restitution owed and if so, how much. Um, and it's by a preponderance so that you make that decisions. Next case, number three, listed in your materials. This case has to do with... Um, and Judge, let me just... Sure. Because we're, we're back to the interesting situation of how does it, how do we find that a uh, that the defendant made a knowing, voluntary, and intelligent uh, change of plea if a claim for restitution can be filed six years down the road? Because they got rid of that when they got rid of the restitution cap. That was the whole theory behind the restitution cap is that you can't make a voluntary, intelligent, knowing waiver of, uh, of the plea if you don't know what the amount of restitution would be. They said uh, in the Patel case and getting rid of the restitution cap that that isn't required for full voluntary knowing. All that you have to know is, is that restitution could be awarded. Now, six years down the line, the court may very well find that that is too late. That would be the main issue there, not that the plea was voluntary or not, but that it's way too late after six years. Then you'd have to examine why is it taking so long, that sort of thing. But usually it's not six years. Usually it's uh, it's a year. That's more of an issue, but that still can be a problem. So you have to always do that in your hearing, make that decision. A lot of times, too, what you might want to do, if you know there's going to be restitution in the future, set a date that there has to be a claim of restitution. Say by um, July, June 15, 2023, any claim for restitution has to be made. Um, they could still make it afterwards, but then that puts more of an emphasis or it pressures the victim more to come forward with uh, proper proof, that type of thing at the time. But um, it's no longer an impediment to being knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently entered as a plea. Uh, number three case we'll talk about. This is coming up more and more. Um, we don't see this so much in misdemeanor courts, but it can occur. And basically, this is where uh, they want to see the records, uh, the privileged medical records of the victim. And they apply for that or an in-camera inspection by the court. Now, um, it's going back and forth. First of all, you don't get anything. Now, it's, you could get things. It all depends on the particular case. In this case, they were able to make a very specialized request. And what happens is the defendant ends up killing his girlfriend and he ends up claiming self-defense. Now, the defendant wants her medical records in order to try to bolster his self-defense claim. And what he was able to show was that years ago, she had attacked him approximately six years ago and was put into a mental hospital for the attacking of him. So he was able to show that she's not only not speculating, oh, there might be something about her being violent, there might be something about her doing something, that would be all speculative. Here is what to say, she attacked me six years ago and was hospitalized for that attack. And they said, yeah, under that, um, the, uh, the, the, um, that they should be able to get the records. The trial court agreed they should be able to get the records. The appellate court disagreed and the Supreme Court says, yes, you can get the records under those circumstances. And they put, as it says in the slide, we hold that a reasonable possibility standard applies to determining a defendant's right to in-camera review. And again, the judge is gonna review it before they're given over of the victim's privileged medical health records. 
a defendant must demonstrate a constitutional entitlement to such information in order to present a complete defense by first showing a reasonable possibility that the information sought included evidence that would be material to the defense or necessary to cross-examine a witness. The defendant's request must be based on more than mere speculation and must include a sufficient specific basis to determine, to, uh, sorry, to deter fishing expositions, prevent a wholesale produ production of the victim's medical records, records, and adequately protect the party's competing interests. And so this is a, a new case, but it does give you kind of, you really have to have a good faith belief for why you need these records and be specific and show how they, how they would help you, that type of thing. And in this case, you know, obviously with the thing of her attacking him six years ago, her being hospitalized for that attack, that was a pretty good specific basis. What's interesting about this case is there's a new case that just came out that we'll talk about the end of it. And the defense is trying to get the victim's medical records and they demand them from the state. Does anyone see the problem with that is going to be in discovery? Okay. The problem is the state doesn't have the medical records. So you're demanding them from a party that doesn't possess them. And they pointed that out that actually it should have been a subpoena seduces take them or something like that to the effect to the victim demanding the records or to the mental health place demanding the records. And then of course, there'd be the challenge of saying you're not entitled to them. But it's an interesting thing when you serve a, a demand, a discovery demand on a party that doesn't possess the records, the easiest thing for the party to say is we don't have them. There's nothing for us to turn over. So keep that in mind. We'll talk about that case at the end. It's just recently come out. Next case I'd like to talk about, um, we're going to go to number five. And if you'll notice, we skip four. The reason we skip four is because basically Jerry Landa wanted me to include it, but it doesn't really address um, limited jurisdiction courts. It basically has to do with felony DUIs, that if part of the felony DUIs, the person was driving without an interlock, they have to, you have to show as a prosecution, the person knew or should have known that they did have, have an interlock. But since it doesn't really apply to us, I listed it for informational purposes, but we're not really going to go on to it. Uh, we're here on number five, State versus Battelle, which we talked about earlier. And this talks about uh, getting rid of the uh, uh, restitution cap. We hold today the constitutional right to receive restitution guaranteed by the Victim's Bill of Rights is a right to receive the full amount of economic restitution or injury caused by the defendant's criminal conduct. According to 28-672G, limitations on an arrest restitution award is unconstitutional and void. Again, as we discussed earlier, um, the way the restitution cap was imposed, um, the victim still got full restitution or economic loss, no matter what. Restitution cap did not prevent that, did not stop that. So um, I don't, again, like I said, I don't really understand it, but it doesn't matter. We follow the Supreme Court being uh, lower court judges. And uh, just make sure you don't have the restitution cap anymore. You have to inform the defendant that restitution would be ordered if it's, if it's appropriate and that there would be a hearing and the defendant would have a right to present evidence and to question the restitution presented. Um, that was also a court of appeals case. This is one where the Supreme Court actually upheld the court of appeals. Next case I'd like to go to would be State versus Turner, number six. We're gonna see this a lot more and more because of the body cameras. 
Um, when you do a, a trial with a body camera or a motion to suppress, it's very interesting because you no longer have to rely on the witnesses. You can actually see the whole thing um, generally, uh, depending on the trial. And uh, so it creates a lot of issues sometimes for the defense when everyone can just watch what happened. And, you know, you get the general argument, uh, the old argument, uh, judge, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes that come out? Um, generally, the judge goes with their lying eyes. And um, in this case, the as we know, the police will shut off the body cameras every so often. Uh, for instance, if they're discussing strategy, what are we going to do, that type of thing. They'll shut off the body camera. If nothing's going on, they may shut off the body camera. Sometimes there's grieving uh, relatives show up. In this case, it was a homicide. The body cameras will be turned off because there's no purpose in showing people crying, that sort of thing. The defendant wanted to raise the issue that by shutting off the body cameras, they were depriving him of a due process issue because obviously there would have been all this uh, exculpatory information gathered at the time the body cameras were shut off. And now that they were shut off, we don't have it and therefore I can't get a fair trial. Here, the court said that's not really the case. This is where a uh, defendant uh, murdered the significant, not significant other, but another, his girlfriend was seeing someone else. He showed up, murdered the guy and, and uh, in front of the girl, and then eventually was taken into custody by the police. And they were saying, no, uh, the police didn't have any bad faith in turning off the body cameras. And there was no showing that this could lead to clearly exculpatory information. So what would be helpful if the prosecution in this type of case presents anytime the body camera is turned off, if this is an issue, that why it was turned off and it wasn't turned off for any bad or improper purpose. But you're going to see more and more of these because if the body camera comes in, it kind of ends the case. Now, that's not always the case. I have had cases where the body camera came in and it, uh, from the police standpoint, unfortunately, didn't particularly support their version of what occurred. So... Uh, Body cameras can be helpful to both the defense and the state, depending on the circumstances. But keep this in mind, because this is going to be something you're going to see more and more, body cameras being turned off. Um, we now would go to case eight. And seven, we're skipping, because seven basically has to do with it was a felony case, an endangerment. And as you know, one, one uh, subsection of endangerment is a felony. One subsection is a misdemeanor. And in that case, for some reason, the judge gave the jury instructions on both uh, for just the felony. And um, they reversed it on that count only. But that only has to do with felonies, so it doesn't really concern us. Next case that I want to talk about is number eight, State versus Duffy. And in this case, um, I'm not really sure why the judge did what they did. But what happens is cars pull over with two people, a bunch of pot, and they're both going to be charged with trafficking and pot. Um, both parties have the same lawyer. The prosecutor brings up that there's a problem with that in that the male says, I didn't know anything about the drugs. I didn't know they were there. I didn't have anything to do with them. The female says, it's all my fault. I did everything. Jim Blake knew nothing. Now, a lot of people always say Jim Blake knows nothing, but in this case, I thought that was funny, but you're all on mute, so I will take it as you're all laughing. But um, in this case, though, now suddenly when it goes to trial, the defense is going to be neither one of us knew that the drugs were there. And uh, from the uh, lady, I don't know why I said I knew the drugs were there and it wasn't Jim Blake's fault. The problem is, as the prosecutor raises, hey, judge, 
these people can have antagonistic defenses and same lawyer should not be representing the both the people judge inquires of the lawyer any problem here no judge there's no problem i've discussed it with my client they've waived any conflict and uh, we now have the same defense there's still problems with that because first of all the, the the male's defense may be i had nothing to do with it she is the one who's guilty not me and she told everyone she's guilty and i'm not guilty so acquit me if you have the same defense that we both don't know you're giving up that defense next is since the state's case is weaker on the male because he didn't confess the state may want to make a better offer to the male saying why don't you tell us what she knew what she did and we'll give you a better offer problem is how do you make that offer to the defendant when his lawyer also represents the female defendant you can't because they can't very well go in and say hey this is a great deal you should take it and and get my new client and get my other client in trouble so what they say here is the judge shouldn't just have accepted the representations of the defense attorney he should have gone into more inquiry especially with the defendants do you two understand that there's a conflict here and that you would have to give it up and if you give it up you will not be able to raise that as a as a, a pcr or appeal right or anything like that against the lawyer the judge doesn't do that and they talk about the judge needs to do that the judge clearly has to have a hearing and establish that these parties are giving up that um, uh, con the conflict that's obviously there um, and in this case they go in this case we hold that when a trial court is advised of a potential conflict here it's not potential it is a conflict arising from the attorney's representation of a co-defendant it must conduct must conduct an independent inquiry to confirm the defendant's sixth amendment rights to conflict conflict-free counsel was waived knowingly and voluntarily critically to satisfy its duty the court must do more than simply credit the attorney's assurances that the defendants have a common defense and waive any conflict the court also goes on to say and i'll read you this from my materials the written materials it gives equivocally the court should advise let's see here the court should advise defendants of the right to a conflict-free counsel make the defendants aware of an in, of an identified conflict explain possible ramifications of the conflict advise defendants of their right to confer about the conflict with different counsel and ask if each defendant understands the risk and wishes to proceed with counsel regardless they don't say you have to do it in that manner but they lay out how you can do it in that case and if you have this come up it's important to pull that case up and i would go through with that that's great suggestions as to how to make sure you make sure you're not going to have any trouble with this so keep that in mind if this arises it it seldom arises in misdemeanor court but it can and at least now you're forewarned and advised if it does next case i'd like to go through is number nine could you remember to advance the slides please yeah we're on number nine right now my screen shows three. Oh. Charles? <laughs> I've got number nine, nine, number nine showing for me. Yeah, mine's showing nine. Uh, anyone else showing nine? I have yes. nine. I have nine. Okay. I, show, I show nine also. Okay. Okay. I have nine. All righty. Okay, let's go on to nine now. This is, a, is an interesting thing because it comes up sometimes where there's a search made. And in this case, Google does searches 
to see if uh, there's any child pornography on your computers. And if they find it, by law, they're required to turn that over to the government. And so what they did in this case, they found child pornography, they turned it over to a government agency, they turned it over to a prosecuting agency. And they tried to suppress it by saying that this private party was acting as a government agent. Because as we all know, illegal searches done by a private entity aren't suppressible. It's only when the government or government or government agent does an illegal search that it can be suppressed. Private parties can do that all they want and you can sue them if you want for an invasion of privacy or an illegal search, but the evidence doesn't get suppressed because the uh, suppression is having to do with government action. So in this case, they try to say Google, because it's required to report this information, is acting as a government agency. And they said, no, that's not the case. Um, they, when you to determine whether a private party is acting as a government agent in a legal search, the court considers one, whether the government knew of and acquiesced in the intrusive, in the intrusive conduct, and two, whether the party performing the search intended to assist law enforcement efforts or to further its own ends. The defendant bears the burden of proving a private party acted as a government agent, and if either element of the test is not met, the private citizen is not acting as a government agent. So remember that this is how you get onto a lot of times with the uh, stop motions, where they try to say, oh, they had no right to stop the person, but they didn't stop the person. The person actually stopped themselves before the cops got there, and everyone jumps over that, saying, yeah, you didn't have any reason to stop the person. Well, yeah, I didn't, because I didn't stop them. Here, they try to say, well, look, this is obviously an illegal search. They didn't have any reason to go through my files. They didn't have any reason to do this. Yeah, but it's not a government illegal search. So always remember, first you have to establish it's a government search or a government agent search. The other interesting issue on this case is when they found all the child pornography, they didn't open every file. They just found enough, and then they referred it to a government agency that goes by the name of NIMIC. N-C-M-E-C, and then it opened a file that hadn't been opened and found more child pornography, and this was actually a government agent, and they referred both to the prosecutor's office. And they tried to say, well, at least the opening of the file that hadn't been opened yet um, should be a government agent, because this is a government agent. And they said no, because the entire part was already opened and turned over. They didn't have to open each individual file. Of course, it doesn't really matter in this case, because once you have one instance of child pornography, especially in Arizona with the laws, um, you're pretty well cooked. But in this case, the important issue is, is, was the illegal intrusion or search done by a government agent or a government entity or by a private party? Private party, they can do it. It's not suppressible. Well, I shouldn't say they can do it. It's not suppressible. Let's put it that way. Okay, next case I'd like to go over is um, number 12, and we're going to skip uh, 10 and 11. 10 just has to do, if you're interested in the written materials, with when you can disqualify a prosecutor's office. Uh, it was the attorney general's office that was being disqualified. If that comes up, it doesn't come up a lot in, um, in uh, misdemeanor court, but in case it does, there's always that case on number 10. The next cases we're telling is number 12 that we have up here. And this one was creating a new misdemeanor jury trial offense. And basically, uh, it's under 28-672. Now, there's a case, uh, Phoenix versus North, uh, North, 
new new Yquist, N Y Q U I S T, where it basically talked about generally under 28-672, you do not get a jury trial. So when they first asked for a jury trial in this statute, they said no. Under Phoenix versus Norquist, uh, you don't get a jury trial under 28-672. However, you do get it under a subsection. So 28-672A8, which is 28794. And basically, if you remember on this statute, this is where you kill someone or seriously injure someone. Now they say you get a jury trial. My reading of this is you don't get a jury trial under 28-672A8 if the person's seriously injured. And the reason being is because in order to get a jury trial, either it has to be ordered by law, obviously a DUI, ordered by law, or there has to be a common law antecedent before, um, before a statehood that gave you a jury trial. And what they found was the involuntary manslaughter statute, or uh, sorry, common law involuntary manslaughter gave you a jury trial under this type of situation. And of course, manslaughter has to do with you have to be dead not seriously physically injured. So what I argue under that subsection 28-672A8, you don't get a jury trial for serious, if you're seriously physical injury, you do get it if you're killed under the common law involuntary manslaughter. And basically what it talks about is in case for those of you who don't know, right off the top of your head, and I don't know, 28-794 has to do with drivers exercising due care. That's where the common law antecedent comes in. So keep in mind now that you do get a jury trial under that offense, and it is 28-672A8 if the person dies. So we want to keep that in mind. Um, and uh, that's um, from June of 2021. So just within the last year, it's come into effect. Next case I'd like to talk about would be see here, number 15. The cases we're passing up, just so you know, one of the ones I just wanted to bring up quickly um, is uh, number 14. It's not on your, uh, it's not on the um, uh, PowerPoint, but number 14 has to do with imposing the cost of prosecution on a defendant. It happened out of Gila County. Um, and basically, you can do that if there's some ordinance that allows it to be done. The court can't do it on their own. Just say, well, the prosecution spent so much money prosecuting you, I'm going to award that and make you pay it back to the prosecution. However, in Gila County, there's an ordinance that kind of allows that, so keep that in mind. And uh, you might want to, if that ever comes up, look at it. But the important thing was the ordinance. And they wrote, we agree that this that the, with the state that the legislature has granted trial court's authority to impose costs of prosecution on convicted defendants, which was a surprise to me, but that's life. Um, next case we were talking about is number 15. Now these cases, up oh, right there, still there, is these cases don't really apply anymore um, because uh, we, it's a Batson challenge. And in Arizona, currently, we don't have Batson challenges because you don't have peremptory strikes anymore. Batson only has to do with peremptory strike. We've gotten rid of those. Uh, there were law, there were bills put into the legislature this year to restore Batson challenges. No, uh, those have not gone through. People don't believe it's going to go through. 
And uh, so if this would only apply if there was a Batson issue. And the only way you would get one now is if you had a case prior to getting rid of the preliminary strikes at the beginning of the year where you didn't do Batson challenges or you didn't grant Batson challenges and you denied them. So um, that they wouldn't be something you'd be seeing now. You'd only be seeing it in a court of appeal, uh, a spirit court sending the case back to you to reconsider uh, from an appeal, from a trial you did prior to the beginning of the year. But so I just bring it there in case anything like that comes up. And basically this is important because what it does is this is another case where the Supreme Court overrules the Court of Appeals. And this is another reason why I say it's important. You all should look at the case for yourself and that um, sometimes these cases are reversed and you don't want to be citing the appellate court case to find out you were, that was reversed by the Supreme Court case and it's no longer the law. Next case I'd like to go to is number 16. This is again another case. I'm sorry, number 17. Um, number 17. This is another case where this case vacates the Court of Appeals decision. So remember, it's always important to keep in mind to recheck these cases to make sure they have not been overturned um, because that does happen. Um, you would think it wouldn't happen as often as it seems to be, but it does happen. Now in this case, basically it's a PCR and, and a lot of times the PCR where they're claiming ineffective assistance accounts, they file an affidavit from a uh, criminal law expert that says, um, you know, I've reviewed this. This lawyer uh, was below the standard of practice for a criminal lawyer, and therefore I believe the person was ineffective assistance counsel. In this case, they did not have the expert affidavit, and basically the PCR was being denied. Um, the what they said was that a defendant must, uh, they, we consider, they were considering whether the defendant must present a standard of care expert affidavit to support his ineffective assistance of counsel. And they said, no, you don't have to. It's good to do that because then you have another lawyer independently looking at it and saying, I reviewed this and there's a problem here, but it's not uh, necessary. You can still make that decision on your own if you choose to. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're looking at the evidence, you don't have to have the affidavit and you cannot deny it simply because there was no affidavit. Um, this was also an issue as to whether or not there had been a significant change in the law and uh, what you do when the rules can conflict with the statute. And what's important in this case is they also said, also from this case, remember, the statute changes a rule substantially, not just procedurally, the rule prevails. So sometimes you have the legislature doing things that the courts don't particularly agree on. If it's a substantive change, the rule prevails. If it's procedural, the statute is the one that prevails. So keep that in mind if you're doing this type of case. Next thing I'd like to look at is case number 18. Now this case is an interesting one because it's a two-state, what they call two-staged interrogation. And what happens is, basically, the defendant is shot and is taken to the hospital. Um, and I'm not, the for me, reading the facts, they aren't that clear to me as to why certain things were done. But I'm sure if I had been the trial judge listening to it, they would have been clear and I would understand it more. But defendant shot, taken to the hospital. 
Small talk is occurring while waiting to have the defendant treated. Defendant is talking about the crime, saying what he did, giving all the information. Now, defendant is in custody and he's making incriminating statements and Miranda has not been written. This is, uh, sorry, Miranda, had, Miranda was written. It hasn't been read to the defendant. Um, and in this case, um, of course, she's making statements that are confessionate, uh, have to do with confessing to the crime. So um, later on, oh, the important thing is, is the officers are not interrogating the defendant. They're just making small talk. They're not asking him about the crime. The defendant is volunteering about the crime. And except the cops do ask, were you on probation or parole? Um, now, what they found was in the when they moved to suppress the statements, they found that it was in violation of Miranda. So therefore, the statement would not come in. Again, I don't understand from the recitation of the facts why it's in violation of Miranda. Miranda has to have several things. It has to be, have to be in custody. And it has to be an interrogation. Here, I totally, and you need to read it or not. Here, I totally agree the person's in custody. Since he was not being interrogated, I don't understand why they thought Miranda applied. Um, and maybe if you heard the more facts clearly from being the trial judge, you would understand that. I just didn't get it from the opinion. Because they say he's talking on his own. The officers are not interrogating him. Someone can, if you're an officer and you're sitting there waiting to, to be relieved so another another officer can come in and you can leave, and the defendant wants to confess the crime, not in response to you, not in response to you doing anything, that's not an interrogation. So I don't quite understand why they suppressed the initial statements. But again, I wasn't there hearing the facts, and the judge may very well have found it was an interrogation. At least asking are you on probation or parole is asking a question, and that's not voluntary. But so they suppress those statements. Next, what happens is the defendant later on is interviewed by an, by an officer who doesn't know about these previous conversations, who wasn't there, wasn't part of it, and very importantly, wasn't a part of a scheme. Like, I come in and, and get you to make all these horrible statements and confess in Miranda, and then I go, uh, later on, I go, hey, Charles, I didn't read him Miranda. Why don't you read him Miranda and ask him these same questions and see if you can get that same answers out of him. And then Charles does that. That's the two-stage interrogation where it's being set up, and they're not going to allow you to do that. In this case, though, everyone agrees, at least the judge finds that everyone agrees, that afterwards, another detective Mirandizes the defendant, he is in custody, and does an in-custodial interrogation. The defendant says the same things, um, and, and then they say, yes, you can. we will not allow the first set of statements. We will allow the second set of statements. Um, so that comes in. Um, so because um, they, you know, you don't, it wasn't, it wasn't found to be a two-stage interrogation process. And they put at the end, a court nevertheless may suppress statements made after a Miranda warning if it finds the police engaged in two-stage two stage interrogation process, progress, process, sorry, with the intent to deliberately obtain statements in violation of Miranda. None was found here because they didn't know about it. Now, one of the things that's important, not about this case, but it's important to remember when you're doing these cases is 
if you find it's in violation of Miranda, that does not end the inquiry. It ends it as to suppression. However, if you find a statement, even though it was in violation of Miranda, is still voluntary, you can use those statements if the defendant, you can allow the use of those statements if the defendant testifies and testifies differently. Because you find it in violation of Miranda, but you find the statement was voluntary. So keep that in mind that if you're going to find this statement suppressed because of violation of Miranda, you still need to go on in case the defendant testifies, in which case the state could inter or question him or cross-examine him or her on that. Next case we'll talk about is number 19. This is another case having to do with restitution. And basically the defendant was appealing, lost the appeal. Then they wanted to try to get around it under Rule 32 by saying there was there was excusable neglect or delay. And it would have to do with delaying the restitution award if the appeal was allowed to be reactivated or brought up again. The victim files a statement objecting to that. And the question comes, does the defendant have a right, does the victim have a right to object in a Rule 32 proceeding to trying to get uh, uh, overturning the appellate court decision and, and allowing the appeal to be heard um, where it's um, under this issue? And they said, no, uh, you don't really get a delay. A victim doesn't really have a right to have a position in delayed appeal. And uh, therefore, the judge should strike the victim's input. The judge does strike the victim's input. It then goes up, and eventually uh, the Supreme Court decides that, and they write, um, let's see here, here we hold only that a victim has a right to be heard on the merits of a Rule 32.1F for a delayed appeal to contest a restitution award. We lead to the courts below, which is always good. We'll make this general decision, and you decide how to implement it, uh, to decide to the courts below to decide in the first instance the appropriate scope of the participation in this and any subsequent proceedings. There's a big dissent on this, and you might want to read it because they're saying, remember, victims are not parties. They don't have party status, and this is pushing them into that, allowing them to intervene in this type of issue. So they do allow it. You can consider it. I'm not sure what the, um, what the big issue on it is, since uh, you can always disagree, you can always get rid of it if you think it's appropriate. You don't have to follow it. Um, and I always like as a judge to have as much information as possible from the parties. Next one I'd like to go over is number 20. And in this case, um, basically, you have a minor sex crimes alleged victim who doesn't want to testify. And the state wants to force this victim to testify. And what they do is they claim, um, based on what happened, I could conceivably be charged with a crime. And what's really important, if you've never had to do this as a court, um, the prosecution can force the person, you know how we all have Fifth Amendment rights. Um, they're not absolute. Um, and the prosecution can grant you immunity. Or like, I shouldn't say that. They can petition the court to grant immunity. There's a specific statute. And if they need to do it, they come to the court and they file wanting immunity for this person um, because that way they can force the person to testify. And there's two types of immunity, which a lot of people don't realize. There's use immunity and there's transactional immunity. Now, the lawyer for the minor sex crime alleged victim 
says, I don't care if you grant my person use immunity. We don't want use immunity. We want transactional immunity. And uh, basically, it seems to be being done. And who knows? Because you never know people's subjective motivations is. It's a way to so that the victim doesn't have to testify in the case. And the state goes, we're not granting transactional immunity. We're only granting use immunity. There's a huge difference in the two. Use immunity is that... Um, Anything you say cannot be used against you in a subsequent proceeding. And we can't use that information to get other information on a case. Um, so you can still be prosecuted for those crimes. Like say, for instance, I say, I committed a theft while this person was molesting me. Um, they could still prosecute me for that theft. They just couldn't use my statement. That's why it's called use immunity. They couldn't use my statement in the trial. And they couldn't use my statement to gather other evidence. But say, for instance, they already had plenty of proof that I committed the theft. They saw me do it on tape. A, a security agency saw me do it. I could still be prosecuted. They just couldn't use anything I said. And I could be forced to testify under those circumstances. Transactional immunity is we will give you complete immunity for any crime that you may have committed that is brought up during your testimony. And this is the old thing where everyone's worried about. Um, you know, did this person molest you? Yes, they did. And they did it just after I murdered that guy. And of course, if I have transactional immunity, now they cannot charge me with the murder anymore. So that's why there's a huge difference. That's why you have to be very careful when you're deciding what to do. Now, for instance, they can't say, uh, did you commit a theft 10 years ago? And I say, yes, I did. And by the way, yesterday I murdered someone. It doesn't work that way. The answer to the question has to be related to the question somehow. And yes, I remember the molest because I killed someone the immediate day after or killed someone the day before. So keep that in mind, use immunity or transaction immunity, there's a huge difference. You have to decide what you're going to do. The state petitions you to grant it. And as I understand the law, judges really don't have a lot of discretion on it. They have to grant it when it comes up, uh, when it's petitioned to you. It doesn't come up a lot in misdemeanor court, but it does. There's a current trial going on here right now where that issue is being used and raised and dealt with. So this could very well come up. So keep that in mind. Next case I'd like to talk about is number 21. Now this case has to do with you're trying to please someone out and you've come up with what you kind of want it to be. Say, well, for instance, a six open. Both defense wants it to be a six open, prosecution wants it to be a six open, and uh, you're, they're trying to decide what crime can we find that's a six open. And what they did was, in this case, is they came up with reckless attempted child abuse. So child abuse with a reckless state of mind, and they're going to make an attempt. The problem with that is you cannot attempt a reckless state of mind. That, that intent standard does not have an attempt part to it. Knowingly does, intentionally does, but reckless does not. So the person pleads to that, time goes by, and then later on they realize, hey, wait a minute, there's a problem here. So they file a Rule 33 to try to get it changed <laughs> and say it's time barred. Um, and what they say is, we therefore hold that when a defendant pleads to an offense not Cosonable under Arizona law, an illegal sentence claim or actual innocence claim is not time barred. 
if there is no evidence beyond the mere passage of time to suggest unreasonable delay. So the fact that the crime doesn't exist, you can still get it removed under Rule 33. It doesn't matter if it's been a while because the crime doesn't exist in the state of Arizona. So keep that in mind. And that's something you might want to consider when you're taking the factual basis or you're doing a plea like that. Um, if it doesn't exist, you can't do it. <laughs> For instance, um, one of the easiest things to do is escape. Um, it's a felony. We don't really deal with it here in misdemeanor court. But when you look at what escape is, it's either escaping or attempting to escape. So you can't attempt to attempt to escape. So keep that in mind if you're doing a factual basis to make sure the factual basis you're setting up is a crime that actually exists in the world and in Arizona. Or otherwise, however many, however many years this was done later on, people are going to come back and say, that's not a crime. Let us out of it. Okay. Let's go now to number 21. This is a case that I talk about every year because of, uh, number 21. Mine's showing 22. Yeah, yeah you just got 21. Okay. Number 21. Here we are. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're on 22. Wait, could you go back to 21 for a second? I'm seeing something different here. 21. Okay. Go to 20. Could you go back to 20, please, Charles? Okay. This is the one with the transaction immunity. 20. Let's see here. Okay. We just got two reads is all. I was mixing up the next one with another read that comes later. That one we'll get to later, but let's go to 21, please. Thank you. That was the one we were just talking about with Reed, with the uh, uh, pleading to a crime that's not a crime. Let's go to 22 now. And once, just so parties know, when we get to 25 originally, it's a different Reed. That was the one I was mixing up with, with the 21. But we'll get to that when we get to 25. Now, in this case, what we have is we have... A person who wants to represent himself. Um, it's like that lawyer who represented Stormy Daniels. We had the uh, uh, counsel halfway through the trial, but when Stormy Daniels was going to testify, suddenly want to represent himself and they allowed it. In this case, what the defendant does is a harassment case. And a lot of these things have to do with the specifics of the case. For instance, harassment, you'll find out later on what he wants to do looks very much like harassment of the victim. And what he's doing is during the trial, he's having counsel represent him, and then he removes counsel and represents himself. The court allows this. And after conviction, he appeals. Uh, no, I'm sorry. The court, when he does it, um, eventually there's a trial. He, it's hung. We try him again. He has the trial again. In this case, he's trying to get rid of counsel again. And he um, exercises or moves to get rid of counsel during the um, uh, during the questioning, okay? And what he wants to do is, let's see here, get it here, find it here. Yeah, on the second trial, he want, he tries to get rid of counsel during the uh, 
um, is his third attempt to get rid of an attorney. And what he wants to do by getting rid of counsel is recall the victim in the case. It's a harassment case. And he wants to recross her himself on undisclosed evidence. So the problem you get is, you know, everyone has a constitutional right to represent themselves. And what do you do when someone's using it as a way to uh, harass the victim and using it as a way to um, uh, uh, create trouble in the trial? And what they find is, and we'll quote here, um, yeah, Charlie, can you raise it up just a little? Because the whole quote's not there. There we go. It goes, Eric, um, Eric, uh, let me see. For an accused to exercise his constitutional right to proceed without counsel and represent himself, he must voluntarily and knowingly waive the right to counsel and make an unequivocal and timely request to proceed pro se. Now, pro se, sorry. Now, in this case, he does make an un, uh, unequivocal and, time, and, and request to represent himself. The problem is the timing. And what they write is a request is generally considered timely if it is made before the jury is impaneled. So keep that in mind. Don't say, hey, we're about to select jury. This is untimely. They put the time of the select, they put the time of you of it being untimely is after the jury is impaneled. So I could see someone looking at it and just saying, well, hey, wait a minute. You're asking for this and we're about to call in the jury. That's untimely. It is not. The jury has not been impaneled. So keep that in mind, because I could see common sense why you might say this is untimely. And then they write, a crest is generally uh, considered timely if it's before the impanelment. If such a request is untimely, it falls within the discretion of the trial court to grant or deny the request. So remember, now you as trial judge have the right to grant or deny the request. It's not just kind of automatic if you find it's done voluntarily, knowingly, that sort of thing. In exercising that discretion, the court should consider the reason for the defendant's request. Now, in this case, I want to uh, cross-examine the victim, recall the victim and cross-examine the victim on stuff I won't tell you what it is. Well, that's pretty easy for the judge to say no <laughs> under those circumstances. Quality of the counsel. Here, the counsel was very good. The defendant's proclivity to substitute counsel and disrupt or delay expected in the proceedings if the request were to be granted. In this case, we know that that's what this guy does. He's done it in other cases, specifically this case where it hung the last time. So in this case, they denied the right to uh, represent himself, peeled up, and the uh, judge was upheld. So keep that in mind that under those circumstances, um, you have a right to, but timely doesn't mean a common sense definition of timely. It means before the jury is impaneled. And then- okay. So, so go ahead. You know, most, most of our trials are going to be bench trials. Yeah. At what point does it become untimely there? With the first witness? or I would say once you call the case and start it. So I would do it more because I would think of the jury, you know, being in panel and you start the case. I would think, do you want to do opening statements? Yes, blah, blah, blah. You know, now remember though, it's still going to, it would be untimely and you would have the discretion, but then you have to look at, um, is this going to disrupt or delay? the proceedings. Well, as a trial judge in a bench trial, probably not. So that's where you'd have to be more concerned about. And, you know, like say it's a like a standard one we get here, two officers are going to testify. So what if it, we could always reset it, that type of thing. 
you could look for why are you doing this too. But I would say once you start openings, the trial has started. Same as the jury being impaneled, the trial has started. But I think you get in trouble if you try to deny it, is that it's a bench trial. Is it really going to disrupt and delay the proceedings a lot? Probably not. So you might lose on that. Okay. Let's go to um, number 23. And this case is, is a little interesting. Uh, um, I think it makes sense, but I'm not really sure why they make a big deal about the uh, other crime occurred outside of Arizona. Basically, this is a father who tends to molest his daughters in different states, allegedly. He's molested one daughter, convicted of assault of one daughter in, I'm sure, I shouldn't say molest, I should say assault. He convic he's convicted of assault of one daughter in North Dakota and then charged with assault on another daughter in Arizona. State wants to bring the first daughter from North Dakota here as a 404B witness, and defense wants to interview her. She refuses under the Victim Bill of Rights. Trial judge then orders a deposition. The appellate court overrules and allows the invoca invocation of victims' rights. We conclude that Arizona's Victims' Bill of Rights provisions allowing a victim witness to decline a defense interview applies to victims called to testify pursuant to 404B and 404C, even if the crime against them took place out of Arizona. I really don't understand why that last clause is in there. I would think if you're a victim, you're a victim. It doesn't matter where the crime occurred. But keep that in mind if you have 404B or 404C issues that the other victim who's being allowed to testify who is not a listed victim in the case you're doing has a right to invoke the Victim's Bill of Rights and not give um, uh, testimony. Okay? Let's see. Let's go to the next one. 24. Oh, yeah. This one is basically having to do with they want to set aside a conviction and basically the crime was one where the admission to the crime included an admission to sexual motivation of the event of the event as part of the plea, um, but it wasn't specifically alleged in the statute, in the uh, pleadings, um, but it was part of the plea. And they tried to set it aside. The state objected based on, because of sexual motivation, it can't be set aside under 13-905N. Um, the court granted the uh, motion to set aside over the state's objection. The appellate court reversed and said, because Cruz's conviction, including a finding of sexual motivation, Pursuant to 13-118, it is ineligible to be set aside under 13-905N. So keep that in mind if the event uh, uh, had to do with admission to sexual motivation, it can't be set aside. Next one we'll go to is number 25. And this is the one I talked about with the name Reed. Different Reed from the last time I was talking about. That's why I got a little confused. This goes up to the Supreme Court. It seems like every other year. Um, First time it went up to the Supreme Court had to do with um, the, there's a question of restitution. Defendant dies pending the resolution of restitution. So they dismissed the appeal and said, uh, he's out of luck. He died. He owes the restitution. Goes up to the Supreme Court. They say, no, that's not the case. If the um, pleadings had been filed for the issue to be decided on in restitution, that can be done. If uh, you could still hear the restitution arguments, if uh, there was another party, for instance, in this case, it's husband and wife, therefore the estate 
which she is now getting because husband is dead. She has a right as the owner of the estate to come in and challenge the restitution. Um, so therefore she could do it that way. So you can get restitution. They send it back to the court of appeals. Court of appeals says, um, and this was an interesting issue that we raised last year. I raised last year is I didn't think that when a victim hires a lawyer for rest of, uh, for criminal matter, you know how they can hire a lawyer and they can represent them for certain issues that that lawyer's fees would be part of a restitution award or could be part of a restitution award. Court of appeals said, yes, it can. This is now this case it has gone up to the Supreme court. Supreme court says, Nah, generally not. <laughs> generally not. Attorney's fees for the victim cannot be part of the restitution. Um, so keep this in mind. It can in certain circumstances. Um, and, you know, who knows if this goes back, whether we'll see it back again. Um, and they say, in sum, per Wilkinson, the trial court must order restitution for economic losses directly caused by the criminal conduct and cannot order restitution for consequential damages. Victims' economic losses incurred because they exercise, enforced, or defended their rights in a criminal case are allowable, are allowed as restitution. But, this is a big but, <laughs> when those losses are private attorney fees, they are allowable as restitution only when an attorney is reasonably necessary to assist the victim in enforcing those rights. Such fees directly flow from the criminal conduct. If that showing is lacking and it's up to the uh, state or the uh, victim's attorney or the victim, it, it's up to them to show it. If that showing is lacking, the fees are consequences of something other than the criminal conduct. For example, the victim's discomfort with the criminal process, mistrust of the prosecutor, or a strategy that the attorney monitor the criminal proceedings to assist in efforts in a related civil case. Such fees are consequential damages, which are not allowable as restitution. So keep that in mind. Uh, it does come up. Um, it was, like I said, last year when I had to teach this, um, I was surprised that private attorney fees were allowable. Um, and now we know that they can be allowable, but generally are not, unless there's a specific showing. Um, so. I don't know if this will end this case, but this is like the second time it's been up to the Supreme Court. And I think they just like getting this case because then they can keep overruling the Court of Appeals because this is the second time they've overruled them. Um, that was a joke again. We all know that they no one would take any pleasure in discomfort caused to another fellow judge. Uh, next case I want to talk about is... Uh, rule as case number 26 and in this case it basically has to do with they want to do a bail hearing defendant is undergoing competency rest, rest, restoration and they're saying the defense is saying no you can't do that because my client can't assist can't help at all um, and uh, they say no we deny relief here however because the trial court does not violate the defendant's due process by conducting a bail eligibility hearing while the defendant is undergoing competency restoration treatment. Um, I assume the release conditions were better than what the defense thought they would get after the hearing. So that's why they were objecting to this ruling. And it kind of makes sense because, you know, you may lower the release conditions. You may raise them in order to protect society. 
And also, too, once the person's restored, you can always go back and have another hearing and determine, hey, now, uh, now that they can uh, assist, um, my conditions were too onerous and I'm going to lower them. Or now that they can assist, I see how really dangerous the defendant is, I'm going to raise them. But so keep in mind, just because there's a Rule 11 hearing going on doesn't mean you can't uh, have, deal with uh, 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 release conditions. And generally it'll occur when the defendant's out because the reason you're looking at new conditions is they've allegedly done something else. Next case to talk about would be number 27. And this has to do with a lot of times the state will try to get um, conversations the defendant has while in jail. And the problem is, is they can't really get or are not supposed to get conversations between the defendant and their lawyer <laughs> um, because of that concept that uh, attorney client privilege. So what happens here is they, the state subpoenas them after seizing them by subpoena. Then they go, oh, by the way, we have these conversations between the lawyer and the defendant and uh, maybe we can use them. And in this case, they're like, wait a minute. Um, this is a, and they write, this is a spew over the existence or scope of attorney-client privilege. The party, which would obviously be the defendant or their lawyer, claiming the privilege must make a prima facie showing that it applies to each contested communication. The proponent of the privilege must show that one, there is an attorney-client privilege. Two, the communication was made to secure or provide legal advice. Three, communication was made in confidence. And four, the communication was treated as confidential. Of course, if the defendant's telling everyone or is on a party line, it's not confidential. If this, if that is done, then the party contesting the privilege must demonstrate a good faith belief that an in-camera review of the communications would reveal waiver of privilege or the establishment of an applicable exception. One of the exceptions is the crime fraud exception. We hear about that a lot now, that uh, if the attorney and the defendant are contemplating or working out how to commit a crime, there's no attorney-client privilege. And that can be the peer, the veil can be pierced and you can go into that. But so keep in mind, we don't again see this a lot in misdemeanor court. It mainly occurs in felony court, but it could happen here. And then that you'd be aware of that case. Number 28 is again, another Batson case. Um, this case was remanded for the trial court to have a hearing. Again, we no longer have Batson issues, but keep in mind, if they do come back, the legislature was trying to do that. As I said, the Supreme Court could always change the rules back. Uh, if it does come back, uh, you'll need to know about these cases. But right now, the only time you have any dealing with this type of Batson issue or any Batson issue is if it was a case you tried prior to um, the beginning of the year and is being sent back by another court. Next case. I would like to talk about would be 29. I've got to be a little careful of our time. This again is talking about Rule 32. Uh, remember, Rule 32 has to do with trials. Rule 33 has to do with changes of plea. And they talk about uh, when uh, things are retroactive or not. They're only retroactive if the new rule comes into effect, if it's substantive, or if the new rules is it, by its promulgation says it's going to be retroactive. Next case I'd like to talk about would be, so we don't want to run out of time, uh, number 30. And this has, I've never really seen this in misdemeanor court. And to be honest, I never saw it in felony court either. Uh, so I don't know if it's just that I've been gone for 21 years, 
and it's a big thing in felony court now, but basically it is, I'm driving a car, I'm speeding, car pulls out in front of me, I hit that car, I kill the son in the car, dad is badly injured. Now, dad has THC in his system, uh, neither one are wearing seatbelts. And I want a jury instruction having to do with the conduct of the victim created a, um, what is it called? A, a superseding uh, event, um, superseding cause jury instruction. That's what I want. And they say no. And basically the reason no is because they both occur at the same time. So it can't be superseding because it occurred at the same time. So they're not going to give the instruction. But one of the things uh, they want to look at, and it's kind of interesting, is um, they write, however, we vacate the Court of Appeals opinion because it failed to analyze the, pre the predicted issue of whether Shelby, that's the victims here, alleged acts and omissions were intervening events in the first place. So they won't allow the superseding cause, but they will allow the court to review to determine if it was supersede, uh, sorry, intervening acts or events, not wearing a seatbelt, um, having THC in your system. So it's an interesting case. And again, this vacates a, a Court of Appeals case. So be careful citing that Court of Appeals decision. But um, I've never really seen this in appellate in, a, in misdemeanor court. That's not saying it's not going to occur. Um, but I'm not really sure how you would get that superseding uh, jury instruction in DUI in a reckless driving. Um, I, well, I could see it in a reckless driving, but it's never occurred. But keep this in mind if anyone ever tries to raise that issue for you. Next case I want to talk about is number 31. This is a child molest case, and obviously we're not going to see that in, uh, in a misdemeanor court. But what's important about this is uh, with child victims, a lot of times they can't really remember specific dates, times, that sort of thing, or they're vague on them, and, and the prosecutor would do the best they can to come up with a time frame. And in this case, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, it was over a long period of time. There was not a lot of detail as to the um, times, dates, places, that sort of thing. And the defense raised the issue that this lack of detail uh, was a due process violation. And it also created double jeopardy issues because you could conceivably be acquitted and then they come up with a new crime or a new date and you're saying, no, wait a minute, that was the same as the one I was acquitted on. And say, oh, no, no, they're different. But if it's really vague, the dates, times, and places, how do you know? And so um, the conviction was upheld. They said because of child victims and because of time periods, there was enough information. So there was not a due process violation or a double jeopardy issue. The problem was is certain counts, um, the, but the conviction was overturned on another issue. And that other issue is, is hearsay statements. The victim gave statements to a teacher and counselor. The state introduced them. They were hearsay statements and they shouldn't have come in. There was no basis for them to come in. So keep that in mind when you're doing a case that you could win on the important issue, but still lose because of the judges, you're ruling on hearsay. You got to follow the law no matter what. Um, but this gives you an idea if the defense, the main issue here is that the defense is raising an issue saying there's not enough detail in the indictment or the charge. We don't get at that a lot in misdemeanor court because mainly it's tickets and you're giving it right there. So it's kind of hard to say, I don't really know what date he's talking about. Well, I gave you the ticket 
right here and you sign for it the same day it occurred. So you do know. But in case you do have issues with uh, if things come up, like child abuse, that sort of thing, where the child is not as good at dates and times, that sort of thing, uh, this would be raised and you can use this case if you think it's appropriate and if you think there's enough detail that you're not in due process violation or a double jeopardy issue. Next well, case. Can we, uh -huh, sure. Can we assume that a hearsay objection was made at the trial? I believe so. I don't, I don't know specifically, but I believe so. And do we know what the basis was for overruling the objection? That I don't know. But that is a good question, and I will know at the judicial conference. <laughs> because someone may ask the same question. <laughs> and then I can't pretend. I never thought of that. I never, I don't remember. <laughs> I have to say, well, Charles Aronetta brought it up, and I do remember, and here it is now. Okay. Okay, now this is an interesting one. Uh, obviously, it's a capital case, so we're not going to see those. Um, the, uh, the, you know, the, uh, in this case, the person it wants to represent themselves. Everyone agrees that this person is basically competent and can represent themselves, but they shouldn't because it's a murder case, and I guess it's a good case. And so the judge orders a Rule 11 hearing, um, even though everyone agrees that the person is going to be found competent. The defense special actions and the court order is overturned. There must be some reason to believe the defendant may be incompetent. The judge here, understandably so, is trying to protect the record. Because you know, once this person is going to be, once this person is convicted, which everyone thinks will happen based on the evidence, I guess, and um, the first thing you're going to do on appeal is say, I shouldn't have been allowed to represent myself. That's crazy. And here you do the rule 11. Everyone says you're sane. You don't have to worry about that. But since everyone agrees the person's competent, everyone agrees there's no reason to order it. You can't just order it in order to protect your record. So keep that in mind. It's understandable why parties would want to do that. It's understandable why it's done, but you can't really do it. Um, so don't do it. <laughs> Next case rule uh, would be 33. This is an interesting case. This is from the Ninth Circuit to our Supreme Court. And the question is, is when you charge possession of drug paraphernalia and sale or possession, sale or possession for sale of drugs, does a jury have to unanimously find what the drug is? For instance, paraphernalia, is it for marijuana? Not anymore, of course, <laughs> but in the old days, is it for marijuana? Is it for cocaine? Is it for methamphetamine? Do they, could they find any of those drugs? Like for instance, you do a jury trial and uh, although we're not gonna find it here, because remember too, in, in, this is just done for illustrative purposes because in these type of trials in misdemeanor court, the judge is gonna be deciding. And hopefully the judge in his own mind won't be split. Well, I think the uh, type was for cocaine but you don't really smoke cocaine. I think it was also for meth. Hopefully a judge will decide in their own mind what it was. So it wouldn't really apply. Um, but this is for a jury. And they said as to, uh, you don't have that, the jury doesn't have to agree on which narcotic drug it is for the element on, well, on the, uh, there, let me stop. The answer to the question is on one is, we're not going to answer. And on two, the answer is yes. 
And basically they go, although we declined to answer the question in relation to 13-3415, which is paraphernalia, they said they're not going to answer if you have to have a set amount, uh, I mean a set drug. But of course, it won't matter to us because we're the trier of fact. And hopefully you're not deciding, well, unless you have a split personality, uh, you can't really decide it's for one, it's half of you says it's for one, half of you says it's for the other drug. You're going to decide it's for one drug. Um, but we conclude the identity of the alleged narcotic drug is an element of 3408, and therefore jury, uh, jury unanimity is required. So for instance, um, you can't say, um, I'm charged with possession for sale of cocaine, and we'll also throw in meth, and then let the jury decide, is it some saying it's meth, some saying it's cocaine. They basically have to be said, you possessed or, uh, sale or possession for sale of cocaine that type of thing. So that when you get the verdict, you, it's obvious unanimous that all the jury agreed the drug that was being possessed was cocaine. So again, we don't really get that here in misdemeanor court, but we do get the paraphernalia one. Let's now move on. We've got a little bit of time left. We'll move on to our next one. This would be 34. This is another one on medical records, and this goes the other way. Uh, but this is the one I told you about that we talk later, where the state doesn't have the medical records. So they're saying, well, you're, getting, you're ordering us to do it. We don't have them. We can't get them. And, and it goes, in this case, there was a state special action of a court order which required the state to turn over victim's medical records, which the state did not possess, for an in-camera inspection. In this criminal matter, state seeks special action relief from an order that it produced a victim's medical records for an in-camera review. We accept jurisdiction because there's no adequate remedy by appeal. We hold that the order should first be directed to the victim instead of the state, and we grant relief because the defendant's generalization and speculative production request was insufficient to overcome the victim's constitutional and statutory rights. So what you can tell there is, first of all, you don't just get them for an in-camera inspection. And the reason for that being is obvious. Like say, for instance, there's no basis to get them. And if, say, you're being treated by a psychiatrist and there's no basis for anyone to review them, I don't care if a judge is reviewing it in, in camera. I don't want a judge reviewing my private mental health records unless there's a reason as to do with this case. So that's why they're saying, no, it has to be not just, well, every, you know, as Charlie would say, not just everyone knows Jim Blake is a nut, so why shouldn't we see his mental health records? And I'd say because it's none of your business. <laughs> but... That you have to have, as I said, a special reason in this case why it'd be relevant and specific as to what it is. Not just, hey, we know Jim Blake goes to a psychiatrist. We want to see what's there. Um, and you'd all be bored to death. <laughs> That's this case. And it's again, it's an interesting thing that I don't know that people really thought of, of the state saying, how can we turn over something we don't have? We, as a, as a prosecutor, have no authority to tell the victim, give me your medical record. Now, the court could do it under subpoena if that was sent to the victim or to, the, to the, uh, her, their, her medical uh, people, but they have a right to challenge that subpoena due is taken. So keep that in mind that uh, it should be the order or the thing should be directed to people who actually possess the material, not people who don't have it. Okay, let's go to the next one. Go to 35, please. 
Now, in this case, what's interesting is on jury instructions. And again, it brings up the all important thing of, first of all, you shouldn't really discuss things in chambers that are important because they're not on the record. Second of all, if you're going to do that, make sure you supplement the record. We were in chambers. This is what we did. This is what we discussed. This is what happened. Does the state agree? Yes. Does the defense agree? Yes. Do either side want to add anything to that? So first of all, don't do it. But if you're going to do it, because we all know we do things we shouldn't do, um, make sure you supplement the record um, extensively so the Court of Appeals can look at it. And basically, there's a contested issue here as to whether or not the person was in a crosswalk before they were killed by a car. And the judge decides they're not going to give the right-of-way instruction because uh, on the uh, crosswalk issue. And again, that was discussed in chambers. There weren't, they didn't really say on the record why. And this court says, uh, yeah, you should have given that. It's important uh, as to a manslaughter yeah. conviction. So keep that in mind. Um, I don't know what the reason was why it wasn't given. Maybe if the reason had been given, the courts would say, oh, okay, um, yeah, it shouldn't be given in this circumstance. Here it wasn't. There's no reason given. And the courts felt it was appropriate to give. And therefore, the conviction is overturned and it's sent back. Now, I think that's all we have on these slides. Okay. First, though, we have extras for you because three new cases have come out. Uh, in the meantime, what I'll talk to you about here really quick, and then we'll go to questions. State versus Wilson. This is a murder case where the defendant wanted the self-defense instruction, and he was given the self-defense instruction. He was not given the crime prevention instruction and not given the defense of residence instruction. And they write, the court writes, this is the Court of Appeals, Division Two. Generally, a defendant is entitled to an instruction to any theory of the case reasonably supported by the evidence. The slightest evidence of justification is sufficient to entitle the defendant to an instruction. But if that instruction does not fit the facts of a particular case, the trial court does not err by refusing to give it. Slightest evidence is a low standard, but speculative or mere inference cannot be substituted for evidence. In determining slightest evidence, we review the facts in the light most favorable to the party requesting the instruction and do not weigh the evidence or resolve the evidentiary conflicts. In this case, they said they should have, oh, State versus Wilson is there. Oh, you listed up thing. Thank you. Um, but um, in this case, what they did is they said you should have given the crime prevention statute. And the reason why that wasn't given, which is really bad, is they cited the old statute. And you had to have a particular element under the old statute of crime prevention to get that instruction. And after a case, they removed that element. And so the parties go, well, it doesn't fit because of that element but it had been removed and the parties didn't know it. And that leads me to the thing about always read these cases for yourself and check if they've been overturned. They should have checked that statute to see that element wasn't there anymore. And that's a big part of the opinion where they go, hey, because that element isn't there, we understand why you didn't get it, but that element's not there anymore. So you should have given it, okay? So uh, keep that in mind. They found though the defense of residence wasn't uh, a proper one to give. So they were upheld on that, but again, it's reversed. The final two cases that are brand new is number 37, City of Scottsdale versus the Honorable M-I-K-I-T-I-S-H slash Mason. And the reason I bring this up is, of course, it's a City of Scottsdale case. 
and it's a civil case. But what's interesting on this is um, the defendant is suing Scottsdale PD for information they put in the police report alleging it's defamatory, where the PD, the police officer in his report was the victim of the case. And there's evidently a case that says um, people have absolute immunity for statements in a police report. You can't sue for statements the victims make in a police report, which I didn't know, um, which is interesting. Um, this is a defamation case where the guy's saying the statement the cop put in the report is defaming me, and that doesn't matter he's a victim. And what they said was you can't apply that because it only applies to civilian victims, not police victims. And the court said, where the heck did you get that from? <laughs> It says victim. It doesn't say civilian. It doesn't say police. It says victim. So if the police officers are victims, they can put any statement they want in their police report. Hopefully it's truthful from their standpoint. Hopefully it's not defamatory, but they have absolute immunity that protects them for statements in a police report. So I found that interesting because I never knew that even existed. Um, I never knew people sued over statements of police report, but I guess now you do. Um, next case is Morgan slash Neff versus the Honorable Dickinson, the Honorable uh, Cardinal, and State of Arizona. And basically, this came out uh, yesterday. So you see, we're up to date. Yesterday it came out. Um, in this case, it's the procedure where a lot of courts in jury selection will do, again, it's a civil case, but in jury selection will do numbers as opposed to names for jurors. Okay? Defense does not object to that. State does not object to that. Guess who objects to it? Our, our people of the, of the newspapers, the reporters object, saying that denies the public all this information, blah, blah, blah. And the appellate court, which is, let's see here. Okay. Well, the appellate court, the court of, um, I can't see if it's a court of appeals or Supreme Court. I'll have to check on that, that came out of the Supreme Court yesterday. Okay, thank you. Uh, Supreme Court says no. They say they write specifically. We are asked to decide whether the First Amendment provides the public a qualified right of access to jurors' names during Valdar, thereby creating a presumptive, presumptive access to those names that can be overcome only on a case-by-case -case basis by showing both a compelling state interest and that denying access is a remedy narrowly tailored to serve that interest. We hold the First Amendment does not prohibit the court's practice of doing it. Now, they suggest you might want to say why you're doing it, why in this particular case, that sort of thing, but it's not prohibited. Um, now, in our courts, the people still state their name when they're introducing themselves as jurors, so it doesn't become an issue. I don't know about other practices in other uh, limited courts of jurisdiction, but that's something to consider. If that is an issue, make sure you're aware of that case coming up, and it's from the Supreme Court. Thank you for that yesterday. Any questions or anything? We still got three minutes. No? Well, okay. uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Judge Blake. As always, the COJET certificate is in the back of your packet. Uh, incredible uh, thanks to Judge Blake, who right up to yesterday uh, gave us an up-to-date uh, summary of the law. So much, and have a great day, everybody.
See y'all. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. That's a great job.